What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. Today I have Tim Gingrich, SVP Strategy at Edelman, five-year stint after a 10-year stint at Weber Shandwick, big competitors in the big PR world there. We're actually going to talk about a campaign that Tim worked on for the Dallas Regional Chamber, Regional Chamber of Commerce, I guess that is. The campaign's called Take Care of Business. It recently won a silver in healthcare at the J. Child Awards, as well as a bronze in the regional category at the J. Child Awards. And I thought it'd just be an interesting chat about work that's happening very much. This, and I just thought it'd be an interesting chat to have about work that's very much happening in Texas, which yes, is as big as in GDP and population as many countries in the world. But it's also somewhere that we don't always outside of Texas hear about the kind of advertising and PR work that's happening there. So Tim, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. Now, we've caught up a couple of times, and obviously, we have a bit of an overlap with the way that we think about strategy, the way that we do strategy. You're 15 plus years in PR. How does strategy work in PR? What's similar to the stuff that you and I might discuss, and what's different? How do you have to adapt some of the concepts and the ways of working to PR, which is obviously a very broad thing? It's such a great question, and I mean grappling with it every day for 15 years. I've always approached strategy as something that at its purest should be somewhat channel agnostic. And so one part of me wants to be a purist and not worry too much about whether this insight is going to lead to a PR campaign or an above the line advertising campaign. But then another part of me realizes that I need to serve and anticipate the things that you know, people are going to run into as they're building a campaign that's meant to work a certain way to earn a conversation rather than, you know, being able to rely on other forms of paid media. So I think the biggest takeaway I've found over the years is that we are even more dependent on tension. And I say more dependent because any strategist in any kind of agency is always looking for attention. But I think that when it comes to earning media, you know what they say about journalists is that they don't want to publish something unless or talk about something in the news unless someone's like bleeding or someone's crying or someone's losing money. It's like so it's really imperative that we find that tension and work with the creatives to own that that tension point. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I think it's just a loyalty to the craft and just doing good strategy and I think good strategy is necessary whether it's going to be a digital campaign or a billboard or, you know, earned. I read Edward Bernays's Crystallizing Public Opinion, which is a very early book. I think mm-hmm. he's the nephew of Freud and apparently said that a lot back in the day, but you know, quite influential. And I think his book for anybody in communications at all, and I mean advertising and, and subset of marketing, it's worth reading that book so you understand where a lot of this stuff came from. He uses the phrase startling facts, as in for PR to release into public startling facts that might make their way into headlines to get people's attention. And I think in modern times, what that has often led to is an infatuation with the statistic and the number, but not always with creative interpretation of that as in an insight, which to me is a creative act. How have you navigated that tension? Because I would assume that that tension is kind of everywhere in PR. You know, that's the tried and true method. It's like release a data that you developed into the media that gets attention sometimes. But I think the kind of tensions we're looking for often, they are human in nature. There are things that are seen through the data. And so uh, it's not so much just like the data is the idea. 
it's like letting the data inform an insight, which is, you know, deeper and more universal and leads to an idea that's more powerful. So I think that one of the fundamental things about those historical PR texts is that they talk about publics and it really informs a lot of the today's thinking about target audiences and thinking about different publics and how they have different needs. The campaign we're going to talk about today is really interesting in that regard because it was all dependent on understanding the audiences. And that's what strategists are so great at doing is looking at a problem through the audience's point of view. So I think that, you know, back to the question about the startling facts, it's sometimes startling to us, but not startling to the audience because it's their life. So it's about getting into their point of view, seeing it from their point of view and say, what's going to be startling to them? Let's use that as a segue to get into discussing this case study. And first of all, congratulations to you and your team, teams, Thank clients, you. et cetera, for a couple of awards. You can trade on an award for a few years, you know? It's a huge honor. How many years are you going to trade on it for? As long as I can. Introduce us to the client. Who are they? Dallas Regional Chamber is a very amazing organization. You know, every city has their chamber of commerce. The Dallas Regional Chamber, because we have such great businesses, well-known names headquartered in Dallas-Fort Worth, everything from you know American Airlines to sports teams like the Dallas Mavs and Dallas Cowboys that are very much businesses, Frito-Lay, others, the list goes on. So this chamber, I think they were named this year the Chamber of the Year, and not small part because of this campaign. They are in a city where the government, the state, local, and um, county governments don't necessarily do that much for various reasons. So that was the case with this campaign. There was no COVID awareness or vaccination campaign from the county or from any of the cities. From the state, you even had, you know, the rhetoric that was discouraging any kind of incentivization. So it was really up to the business community to step up. And so the Dallas Regional Chamber is the voice of that community. And they took the lead. They said, no one else is doing it. We're going to do it. Let me pepper you with some simple fact-seeking mm -hmm. questions. Population of Dallas, Fort Worth? You're actually looking at uh, four counties, Dallas, Tarrant, Collin, and Denton. So altogether, it's about 6.7 million people. It's a huge, a huge population and really fast-growing. It's also very interesting because it's very diverse. It's about, I think, 27 28% Latino. In Dallas County alone, is 40% Latino. So it's a very fast-growing, large, and diverse population. In many ways, it's kind of a cross-section of America or maybe America 20 years down the road. This particular campaign was focusing on, was it North Texas or North Dallas? We say North Texas to kind of encapsulate that whole four-county region. And so up there, I've been up there a few times for soccer mm -hmm. tournaments because a lot of them happen up uh, with this Dallas FC. Everyone flies in from all over the place. because Dallas it's in the till I die, yep. It's fun, it's fun. Definitely a lot of cars. Maybe more cars than people. Maybe. Now, Dallas and Texas are known for not liking government. Mm -hmm. So for not wanting to be told what to do. What was the task or the challenge that Dallas Regional Chamber brought to you? You know, it's funny. As you know, you lived through the early days of the pandemic. It was such a moving target. When they first came to us, it seemed like a supply problem. There are not enough vaccines. There are lines around outside of stadiums around the corner. And we started to look into how we could um, deal with the access problem. In other words, communities that were already underserved from a public health perspective, it was difficult. It was confusing. It was even harder for them to access these already limited supplies of vaccines. 
when we started looking into the data, we realized what seemed like a supply problem was about to turn into a demand problem. And we went back to the chamber and we said, we actually think by the time we get this campaign in market several months down the road, the challenge is going to look very different. There's actually going to be a problem with people not wanting the vaccines. At the time, I mean, it was, we were all like looking at this data, we were shocked, like, how could anyone not want the vaccines? But the data was actually showing that the amount of people who said, I am unsure, or I am decided that I'm not going to get the vaccine was already in the, you know, I think it was like, at that time, it was like 48% of people not planning to get the shot or not sure. So you start to do the math and you go, wait, if we're going to reach 70%, which was the goal set by the White House at the time, if we're going to reach 70%, but 48% of people or 50, you know, 2% of people said they already got the shot or are planning to get it. 48% is like, there's no way to reach 70%. We made a pivot right there. We said, we need to think down the road. We need to focus on the demand problem instead of the supply problem. So there's a bit of a reframe of the problem. What kind of research were you doing? Were you sitting at a desk looking at research coming in? surveys, et cetera? Were you talking to people on the street, visiting homes? What did you do there? You know, this is one of the situations where we were very fortunate. There was so much data coming in, right? The, um, certainly the CDC was tracking. The state, Texas uh, State Department of Health Services was releasing every single day vaccination numbers. The Texas Tribune, which is a local statewide publication along with the University of Texas, was doing research that was coming out into attitudes toward the vaccine that they were putting out, which is very helpful. And then you have all these major healthcare organizations, Kaiser Family Fund, you know, Pew, everyone was just releasing. So there were mounds of data and it was about cutting it up and looking at, instead of looking at the whole, it was about looking at like slices. As a whole, America thinks this, but when you limit it to this region or this people with this education level, people with this income level, you start to see these different, very different pictures emerging. And that's really what happened when we looked at Texas. What I was telling people is that the movable middle wasn't in the middle. You have 52% of people saying, I got the shot or I'm, I'm already like signed up, I'm getting the shot. That other 48% of people saying no. It seems very daunting from a marketing perspective. Usually when we have a campaign, we want to target the people who already like us or who look like the people who like us or who are likely to like us. And I think that this is one of those times we just didn't have that luxury because 70% objective wasn't set by marketing, it's set by medicine. So yep. how do we close that gap? We needed to get 600,000 more people vaccinated. And if we only focused on the people who were unsure, it would have only gotten us two or 300,000 more people. So we had to reach those people who were saying no. As a foreigner who was recently awarded green cards, kind of excited, slightly less stressed right now after 11 years, what is interesting about US culture, first of all, it's very individualistic, it's very consumerist, it's very holistic, and there are three things that you definitely tapped into, and we'll hear about that in a second. Also, what's interesting is the way that for decades, it seems like politicians through media have been very, very good at saying, no, there are two sides, and anything of any national or regional importance immediately has to go to one side or the other. Dallas and Texas loves freedom, which is a code word for a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nice way of looking at that word is like, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to live my own life, right? That's the nice way to look at it. But there are a shadow side to that word as well. When you were looking at the research, when you were sniffing around the attitudes of people, is there anything that you think is specifically regional that shapes yeah. people's attitudes, especially the 600,000 people that you needed to get vaccinated? 
Was there anything specifically regional that shaped their attitudes towards vaccination? Yeah, definitely. And it's great. I mean, I think these days we work on so few things that are local or regional. And the internet has made it where we, you know, we're doing these things that reach everyone. But it was so interesting from an insight point of view to be able to talk to family members and people in the park, look at things that were happening locally. There was one incident. So this is a great example of that. We traced a lot of the attitudes back to one incident where it's silly, but it was impactful. A local shop owner, a salon owner had just refused to close when the county judge had said all the businesses have to close. She had refused to. And one of our senators of the state decided to go get a haircut there. I don't have to tell you who it is, but it's the one with the worst haircut of the two senators from our state. So you can figure it out. But anyway, it planted a seed where people saw public health and business on opposite sides. If we want to get back to business, we have to make a choice between that and public health. And it was unfortunate because business, certainly the Dallas Chamber did not see that it that way, but people saw it that way. So it's weird because it's obviously there's a political aspect to it. But like you said, there's a cultural aspect. So Dallas itself is a very democratic city. But I think that attitude of business can do things really well. And businesses are our sort of, um, you know, leaders of our society in many ways. That goes beyond just politics. It is a social thing. So one of the things we described to when we talked to them, when we were briefing the creative team, we talked about how different a city like Dallas is from a city like New York. In New York, if your neighbor's house is flooding or the person above you, I should say, if their apartment is flooding, guess what? You're flooding too. You know what I mean? If their pipe bursts, your pipe bursts. In Texas, for a lot of people, your neighbor's house could be burning down and you wouldn't, your smoke detectors wouldn't even go off. I remember this one Sweatheads podcast with, um, you did with Derek Walker around the beginning of the pandemic. And he was saying, yeah, you tell people outside these big cities social distancing and they're like, we're, we're already social distanced, right? So what we said was that all the other vaccine campaigns were some form or fashion repeating essentially Hillary Clinton's campaign slogan stronger together. It was all about come together. And that's just not going to work in Texas, right? You tell Texans come together and they will like purposely walk the other way. They will just, that's not in their nature. I'm stereotyping, I'm making generalizations, but I'm 100% confident that nine out of 10 Texans would like agree with me on that. And I say that as someone you can hear from my accent, I was born and, and lived many years in Texas. So what we said was that we have to find another reason that it matters to them. And it can't just be come together to come together. It has to be come together for something else. You look around Texas, there is not mountains. There are not rivers. There's no beach. Why do people come there? Why is it the fastest growing metropolitan area? Why do people stay? It's for jobs. And if the economy is not going to do well, and people are going to lose their jobs. There's really no more reason to be there. And yeah. so that was our key. And the research was showing like back to talk about publics and the startling facts. If you looked at the research for the whole country, the most influential people were your doctor or scientists or clergy. When you talk to people in Dallas, it was like overwhelmingly 60, 70%. It was like my employer. That was the most trusted person they would listen to. The employer was the most trusted. The employer. And, you know, I think a lot of it's like, you got to understand, I mean, a lot of people don't even have a personal physician. I trust right. my personal physicians for people who have one. 
If you spend your days trying to get into people's heads, but are interested in strategy classes, books, and events that get into your head, visit sweathead.com. You can pick up the Kickstarter-funded book, Strategy Is Your Words, by me. Find out about our monthly membership, online classes, and the company training that we do. Yes, this was an ad, a gentle, gentle ad. Back to the interview. Just before we go into describing what the campaign was, I appreciate that you were telling us two options that you looked at. One was more collectivist, which Mm -hmm. I'd imagine a country like South Korea would have followed, for example, which Mm -hmm. is like, we got to keep each other safe because we have hundreds of years of collectivist culture and people would probably Mm -hmm. mostly go along with that. Dallas and Texas, very opposite, probably number one in individualism in the most individualistic Mm -hmm. country in the world. Can you recall two or three other angles that you considered? We talked a lot about competition early on and exploiting competition because we thought, well, look, if people aren't going to unite, then why don't we just do the opposite? What if we created a rivalry? You know, you see this in the sport. Dallas, you know, this is from soccer perspective, but Dallas is such a sports city. It goes for all this Texas wide. Texas has three NBA teams, right? Like Mavs and Rockets and the Spurs. So I think that independence comes out through competition. So we even explored, like, do we set up a rivalry and see Houston, Dallas, who's going to get to 70% first. You know, that was certainly something we explored. I think that ultimately we landed on the business emphasis because we started looking at those sports teams and we realized they're businesses. The churches are businesses. Mm. Everything's a business in Texas. Can you explain to somebody who's never lived here Mm -hmm. the sort of acquiescence, acceptance, maybe the enjoyment that a lot of people, especially in Texas, but I'd say broadly speaking in the US, a lot of people, not all, have in being kind of a willing pawn in capitalism. Mm. It's something that a lot of people don't regret or resent's a better word, right? Help us understand that a little bit. Where's that come from? I see what you're saying because... You know, in many parts of the country, if you said, we need to get vaccinated, there's the best way to support businesses, people would be like, I don't give a care about supporting businesses, right? I think that the more pro-business attitude in Texas probably is a result of, you know, maybe it's an accident. It's like, because the government, the state government has purposely weakened the public and government's role in solving problems, it's forced businesses to step up. So therefore, people can see, okay, businesses somehow did something business, you know, I Mm. I don't necessarily personally, you know, I don't, I don't know that that's always the right way. I think that there's many good examples, though, in Texas. So public private partnerships, you know, many parks, many things are public private partnerships. So that has basically given people that sense, okay, this is a good way to solve problems is by involving business. I don't know if I've got anything interesting to add to, uh, but I'm going to try to do a metaphor, which is like, uh, in some ways, the big businesses are like kingdoms, you know, and they have willing serfs in them. It feels like a contradiction unless you spend a lot of time here where someone who could be an hourly wage earner could still be very proud of the business that they're in and want their business to do well, even if that never helps them do better. An outsider would think that maybe that's not rational that maybe they should demand more from their businesses, for example. Can you help me Mm. arrive at some epiphany here that (laughs) I'm struggling to arrive at? Yeah, look, I think that it's definitely part of understanding the psyche of Texas, but the ethos of Texas, but I think it's also a bigger American issue. Like, to me, Texas is the essential oils version of America. It's like if you take peppermint 
and take everything out except the pure peppermint. And you're left with this super highly concentrated drop of peppermint. Like that's what Texas is. It's like, it's all the things about America. And it's just like that essence. And it's just boiled down to this really intense version. And, you know, you can see it in the size of the flags, right? As you drive down the road, there is a, you know, for historical reasons and many reasons, there is a entrepreneurial mindset that I think wants businesses to succeed and wants to see them rise with a mentality that will all boats rise. If those businesses are doing well, we're all going to be doing well. So the campaign was called Take Care of Business and it had mm-hmm. a, line, a line in it, protect people, protect paychecks. Mm-hmm. How much of the response to the campaign do you think was about protecting businesses, protecting other mm-hmm. people's paychecks versus yeah the business that I'm in or that my kids are working in or my relatives are working in to protect my paycheck. It leads as collectivist, Mm -hmm. but was interpreted in an individualistic way. Oh, what a nerdy strategy question. That is impossible to answer, but I'd like to try. Look, I mean, we were definitely trying to pull off some, I think, some very complicated mental ninja moves, right? (laughs) Because, you know, we're basically, we need people to come together and do it for a bigger reason. But the reason has to be grounded in like something that can benefit them. So, you know, we purposely feature a lot of the small local businesses. Like we wanted to show the barbecue restaurant, the laundromat, the coffee shop, the things that are part of people's everyday lives. So it was a recognition that for people, business is not just employment, it's enjoyment. Those are all like wrapped up together. I need my paycheck to enjoy my life. And the place where I spend that money to enjoy my life is also a business. So we were trying to draw that connection. Okay. And what shape did the campaign take? Which channels? It was conceived as a PSA, the works, right? TV, radio, in-store shopper, a sort of like in-store point of sale, I should say, out of home. We also, and this is really crucial, we actually sponsored about 100 plus pop-up vaccination events. We were really out there with our partners on the ground where people were, you know, even the launch of the campaign was held at a, the press conference was held at a workforce center. So people were coming in to get jobs and we were saying, get a job and get the jab, you know, get vaccinated right there on the spot. The other thing that happened in the campaign, which was sort of a surprise, it was kind of a curveball. About halfway through planning, we started seeing news of cities doing incentivization. Did you remember these stories? Like a city was like, you could win a, I think it was like Miami or something. It was like, you got the shot, you got in a raffle to win a car or no, I think it was Malibu. It was Chevy Malibu or something. And then it was like, some city said, well, we're going to give everyone a beer. And so we looked at that with a, what can we do? We don't just want to follow the trend. Houston had been very successful with hundred dollar incentive, uh, very small. It's like nudge and it's very effective, but we want to do something that was true to the spirit of the campaign. So he said, how can we give people a way to take care of themselves, but also take care of business at the same time? And so we partnered with all those chamber members to get all these essentially prizes, right? Frito-Lay ponied up like bad bunny tickets. American Airlines had plane tickets. So these were all things that people had been missing out on during the pandemic, travel, entertainment, right? And so if you got the shot and you went to our website, you signed up, you registered, you got entered and you could win. The interesting thing about this was this was our big news hook. This is what gave the campaign earned legs. The local media went crazy with this story. That was more like what they wanted to talk about, right? Instead of just everyone get the shot and here's this PSA, we're going to play three seconds of it. 
it was like, you could win, right? You go here and sign up and all these local companies are giving these prizes. And it was this, you know, gave us a great source of continuous news beat. So I think that was really a big part of the success of the campaign, you know, being on the ground with actual events, talking to real people, and then doing something that the media felt like they really felt compelled to talk about. And for those who are new to PSA, public service announcement. Why do you think the campaign was awarded silver and bronze at the Jade Child Awards? What are, what are two or three things that really stood out about it to the judges in your point of view or, or would have stood out to the judges in your point of view? I appreciate them taking it up because honestly, I totally get that no one really, and this includes myself, like I don't really want to think or talk about the pandemic right now. It's like too soon. I was thinking about 9-11 recently on the anniversary. Like it took so long. Like I still haven't watched any of the movies about 9-11. I'm not ready. But to me, as unpleasant as it is to recall how we felt in the early days of the pandemic, I think that this campaign, you could change the names and the places and it would still be interesting because it's ultimately not really about vaccines. It's about, can you change someone's mind? Is it possible? And I think a lot of marketing today, a lot of times, we never really have to confront this challenge. We're basically going, like I said earlier, we go after people who already like us and we make them like us more. And so this is a big challenge for me is like, is it really possible to change? And I think what I take away from this, Mark, is that you can change someone's behavior without necessarily changing their mind. I'm hoping that's what the judges saw in this, because we didn't try to tell people, actually, you're wrong. You should be more collectivist. We met them where they were. We worked with their point of view. And within that framework, told them why they should get the vaccine. And it worked. We achieved 70%. We actually exceeded it with 600,000 plus of vaccination just over the summer months. So a very short period of time. Yeah, I think it's really important what you said about meeting people where they are or trying to find the common ground. I have seen a lot of, it's not just younger strategists, but a lot of younger strategists who want to feel like they're doing noble work, who want to bring a sense of politics and activism to the work at all times, sometimes look down upon the audience that they need to communicate with really want to take a stance of lecturing the people about why they need to be different. And the way that the brain works, according to researchers who talk about common ground and how it affects the mind, is as soon as you tell someone they need to be different, what do they do? They dig in, they become defensive mm -hmm. and they're not, right? So you've got to work out the door to go through, which is a door that they're ready to go through or maybe halfway through. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about writing the award entry. How did you approach it? You know, with the reward entries, it's always like you have too much so you had to decide, you know, what are we going to keep in? There's so many things as a strategist I want to talk about. I want to talk about how we pulled out this audience segment and we, we combined this data source and this data source and overlaid it with zip codes and, and identified this perfect persona who was most likely to change their mind. But I think what was really number one most compelling was we started with a problem. Just how insurmountable this seemed. How do you get 70% of people vaccinated when they really don't? want it or they're saying they don't want it. And number two, we just jumped straight into that point about how people said they would trust their employer. It was contrasted. You know, we talked about tension earlier and the startling facts. People didn't realize just how much business was still hurting. You know, you can tell people it's okay. Take your mask off. Go back to work. We're back. Texas is open again. But in reality, you know, uh, big chunks of our economy, like leisure and hospitality, down 50%, like one in four small businesses had closed their doors. So when we confronted people with those facts, there was this disconnect. It was like, oh, I see businesses are still hurting. You know, you could tell people business is open, but if they're too scared to go or they're sick and can't go to work, then it's, it's not open. So I think that we just 
in the award entry what my colleagues, we worked on this and refined it. And that's really what we chose to focus on, the contrast between I want to help business, I want to support business, I want to get back to normal, but things are not normal. Business is not as usual, and we need to do something about that. So that was the main pivot we made with lives and livelihoods, people and paychecks. I like it, I like it. I was getting flashbacks to, I guess, speeches by politicians over the years that try to get little people who might not benefit much from the economy to see themselves as people who need to make the economy economy work. And it's just so deeply Mm -hmm. embedded into the American psyche. Not everybody, but I think on on a mainstream level, everybody is concerned about the economy. It's kind of... It's interesting because we see it now. We see it right now, you know, with inflation, I mean, totally different context, right? But with inflation, I think that there's a lot of interesting research now about how people want to support local business or they want to do the right thing and, and buy a certain kind of product, but then like cost becomes a real factor. I think that sometimes, you know, maybe because we've, um, America spent so long um, sort of doing propaganda and PR, pro-capitalism PR during the Cold War and discounting anything remotely related to socialism or the Soviet Union that sometimes we forget the importance of class. And I see so many briefs, they talk about age, maybe they talk about education level, maybe they talk about household income, but there's not very much thinking put into class. We don't have names for our classes in the United States, like some countries in the past did or some cultures in the past did, but they very much exist. We saw that in this campaign. You would assume, oh, Republicans don't want the shot, but that's not actually true because in the county and the zip codes, some of the had the highest vaccination rate were deeply red but they were also highly educated and very wealthy. So you started to see the breakdown wasn't just as simple as, well, the Democrats think this and the Republicans think this. It had to do with socioeconomic factors. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, education, access to healthcare, information, these things were all very, very important. So yeah, to to your question about the role of business and to that, that how this sort of is a microchasm for a bigger sort of mindset of America, I think that it's definitely something to encourage me to think about more in the future is looking at the audience from almost a class, you know, I'm not talking about class warfare, but class awareness, like two rich people or two poor people who may be different age groups or different generations may have more in common than they know. Yeah, that's interesting. Obviously, there's a difference between what people want and do versus what they say. Yes. Many politicians who are anti-vax we're first in line to get vaccinations, right? It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. How did Dallas Regional Chamber react to the awards? This is the greatest client. They're business people. From that business point of view, during the pandemic, there was nothing to lose. They had lost so much. Their members had so much on the line. So when we went to them with bold ideas, they were like, yes, let's do it. You know, they were, mm-hmm. they were so receptive. And I've, I appreciate them so much, even when we went back to them and said, actually, we need to do an incentive program. We need more money. And they said, we'll find it. And so I think that they deserve a lot of credit for bringing the bold vision and then just equipping us. They were definitely big parts of all the award entries and have entered some of the awards themselves. And like I said, they were recently named Chamber of the Year, largely because of their proactive role in addressing these social issues and other social issues that they address. Final but big curly question. (laughs) What's the point of winning awards? I appreciate this particular, the Shiats, because it does have that tie with Stratfest and, and the strategy part of it. You know, to me, that means a lot to be able to come together with other strategists and talk about that. And certainly the creative aspect is so important. But 
to dig into the how and the behind the scenes. I think that the awards kind of, they force us to focus more on craft, which sometimes gets lost. You know, maybe there's not enough focus on craft today. I personally just love my job and I love to write a good creative brief, even if no one ever reads it because I just want to do a good job. And I think that that's a good thing about the awards is having other people from your discipline look at your work and think about it that way. So I think it can help us all just maybe, I guess, ideally, I think the awards help us focus more on excellence. Yeah, I think so. Because a lot of people don't like awards. There's a bit of award shaming, especially creative award shaming. But they send a high and clear expectation in an industry that sometimes struggles to articulate how it's helped mm-hmm. them. Right? So mm-hmm. I, th- I think they're useful. I think they're useful. Uh, if people want to see this campaign for Dallas Regional Chamber, where's the best place to look? It's still living on the web. Take care of business, dfw.org. DFW means Dallas Fort Worth. So take care of business, dfw.org. And you can see the videos that we created and English and Spanish and and some of the other assets, you know, there were also all kinds of toolkits for businesses to use with their employees. And I think it's a nice spot. It really demonstrates how I think we captured the mood of that time, which is we all just wanted to be free. I mean, I think, you know, you talked about how that is a loaded word and it's a code word. It means a lot. But I think that if we're honest, you know, no matter where we fall in the political spectrum, we all wanted to be free. And maybe we're still feeling that now. I wish it wasn't as relevant today as it somehow still is. Maybe it just um, reflected something about all of us. So. Love it, love it. And if people want to find you on the internet, where is the best place to look? Probably in the comments section of Sweatheads on Facebook, but uh, <laughs> I'm on um, LinkedIn, mostly Tim Gingrich. I'm like the only one of the only ones. So Tim Gingrich on LinkedIn and yeah. Beautiful. Tim Gingrich, thank you very much for joining me to talk about the Take Care of Business campaign for Dallas Regional Chamber. Congratulations to you your team at Edelman and your clients and all the other agencies and people who were probably involved as well for doing some work that managed to acknowledge a local population, which is easy to kind of stick into like a big monolithic package and patronize with a PSA like this, but it's not what you all did. So well done and congrats on the awards. For this stimulating conversation and great questions. And it's been awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If it's your first time here, please subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating. For more information about our strategy classes, events, and books, visit www.sweathead.com. And yes, you can find us on Instagram at, at Sweathead.